I think the realization was that too many days were being destroyed by drinking, too many nice things were being ruined by it, and very little was being made better by it. So, you know, in, in the sort of bank of booze, I suddenly got an overdraft rather than a deposit, if that makes sense, and a very obvious one. And so I, I just thought, or realized rather than thought, somehow this has got to stop. And then it just became a question of how best to do it. Welcome to the Hurt to Healing podcast with me, Pandora Morris. I've been fighting an uphill battle with my mental health for many years, and it's only now that I've started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to support as many of you as possible on your own healing journey by sharing conversations that are more honest and more raw than ever before. I'll be speaking to some wonderful people from all walks of life who will open up about their own invisible struggles in the hope that it will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. The Hurt to Healing podcast is proud to partner with Shout, the UK's first free, confidential, 24-7 tech support service. So if you're struggling to cope and need mental health support, please text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by the very talented jeweler Theo Fennell, or, as he's otherwise known as, the King of Bling. In the early days of Theo's career as a jeweler, he was a notable socialite who had a slightly unhealthy relationship with alcohol. Theo has since scaled down his partying and gave up alcohol many years ago. Theo has since opened up about his partying ways in his memoir called I Fear For This Boy. It's focused entirely on his greatest accidents, one notable one being an alcohol fuel presentation at Tiffany & Co, which I won't spoil, but it's definitely worth the read. Today, I want to ask him all about why he decided to stop drinking, how becoming sober has transformed his life, and how his outlook on the world has changed as a result. I have just finished your brilliant book, I Fear for This Boy, and I'd love to know where the title came from and why was this kind of a perception of you from such a young age? Well, the, the title came from my final school report. It was going to be called, which it is, still subtitled Chapters of Accidents. But during lockdown, when, when I wrote it, really as a sort of, to give myself something to do to stop myself lurching into indolence, which I thought I might do if I didn't give myself something, a project to do. During that lockdown, we find an old bag, an old sort of canvas bag with all my and my sister's school reports in it. And my sister, my two sisters, twin sisters, had the most unbelievably glowing reports. I mean, they couldn't have been more glowing. You know, they'd sort of captained the lax team and the hockey team, and they both won scholarships to Oxford. And I mean, just one of them actually said, to teach the Fennell sisters is one of the great delights of my teaching career. And then we got to mine, which were almost universally sort of poor. And in some cases, really quite uh, vitriolic. And I hadn't really realized I'd been quite such a, a, a sort of, trial to so many teachers. I'd always thought I got on well with, with masters and what have you, although there were two simply appalling ones there, both in, interesting drunkards. But my final report, very final report, which is meant to be a sort of three-page character assessment, you know, one sort of, you know, good points and perhaps slightly weaker points, and where one might go in life, 
just had one sentence in it, which Louise found, my wife, found incredibly funny, which was, I fear for this boy. That's all it said. And do you think you've played out that narrative in your life? Without a doubt. I mean, I think it rather depends in what spirit it was made. I knew the man pretty well. And I think he realized that both my father and I would see through the sort of shortness of it, the brevity of it, and pack it, which we both did with all sorts of other meanings. But I think he was right. I think he feared that I wouldn't achieve what potential I might have had, go astray. I think he feared that I might mess things up, all of which were justified. So you were always creative, obviously, from a young age. And then you eventually opened your jewellery shop in 1982, I Mm. believe. What sort of inspired that? Because I can imagine being a man of your sort of, in your social circles, it wasn't necessarily a route that people would have gone typically. So what was sort of your your drive? I think rather, I, I had a sort of sort of lateral drive rather than the forward drive, I think. I was always very interested in lots of very different things. So consequently, um, I never sort of went in a, a sort of controlled or preordained forward way. I had no plan. I mean, never had a plan, really. But I, uh, I loved drawing. I loved painting. I loved uh, playing the guitar and singing and writing excruciating poetry and all those sort of things. And I, I suppose I was what you would now call a creative so going into the army was not going to be a good idea. My father, all my family were soldiers. My father was very sweet about it and said, you know, honestly, I don't think you'd, you'd suit the army. And I was sort of um, thinking of going up to Cambridge to read fine art and moral sciences, one of those things that obviously equips you perfectly for any, any business. But then when I was asked what I really wanted to do, I said I wanted to go to to art school, and I did pretty much nothing for about three years apart from sketching a bit, dressing like an artist, and at the end of that, I got a thing called a DIP-AD, which is a Diploma in Art and Design, which doesn't exist now, which is about as much use, I would think, uh, in, in job hunting as a geography O-level, something of that sort. So I was no further you know, ahead. I, I, by that time discovered and rejected songwriting, poetry, novel writing, portrait painting, illustrating, I mean, literally everything. And I became that person that people discuss at breakfast, you know, what are we going to do with Theo? And my great aunt Mary sent me a, an advertisement from the Lady magazine, believe it or not, but it was for a silversmith's in fact, the greatest silversmith probably that there's ever been in um, Hatton Garden. And I went for an interview, and for reasons I've still never understood, they offered me a job. So that's literally how I came to be in the jewellery business. And after two very rewarding, in the sense of learning years there, I thought, well, I know enough about this now. I'll start my own business, and that's how it started. So, Theo, you do speak in your book a lot about your drinking. Why do you think you started to become more reliant on alcohol? What did it serve in your life at that time? You know, I've given it a lot of thought over the years, and I think I was always a sort of extrovert in a, an introvert's body. I know that sounds an absurd um, thing, but I was very shy and still am to some extent. But 
there was a drinking culture in my family, my family was of that sort, that drank enormous amounts, what we think of as enormous amounts now, without thinking twice about it. So it was a time when, you know, you went over to somebody for, for, to have lunch with somebody, you'd have a couple of drinks in their office, and you'd have, you know, a bottle of wine at lunch and probably a brandy afterwards. So you'd be quite pissed through the afternoon and expect you to do some work, and then at six o'clock you'd start the whole thing again. And then, actually, not so much wine at lunch, but it was, it was a culture that, that one was in. And then I, I, I very much loved pubs, I very much loved clubs. And I think, you know, when I was at art school, I mean, everybody was drinking vast amounts as well as indulging in other recreational pharmaceuticals. So it was not thought of as odd to be pissed. There was nothing to say it was a bad idea. There was nothing to sort of lead one to believe that, that it was impacting on one's life at all. And I certainly found, I mean, I never drank on my own, bizarrely. I was never a sort of, but I would go out and find a reason to drink. I'd go and find somebody to drink. And as one does, one found myself with other people who drink and you enjoyed other people who enjoyed a club and a pub. And it did add to the, the jolliness of life. In retrospect, I, I, if I'd been able to have, you know, youthful dalliance with booze and then at sort of 30 started to, grow up and um, perhaps control my drinking, but I couldn't, I didn't. I would go on really till the cows came home and I was, you know, I got more and more happy, I find. <laughs> and um, amongst my contemporaries, friends and things, it was the way we all behaved and so it just seemed to be the normal thing. And in fact, greater opprobrium was, was heaped on anybody who said, now I've had enough or I don't drink or I'm going home. So it was a very different landscape. Social landscape, certainly, you know, in the 70s and 80s. So I think, you know, it, it, it was a mixture of a sort of uh, crutch uh, in the way of, of, of getting me over any shyness that I suspected I had but didn't know, and of part of a very jolly, irresponsible, and, you know, hell fellow, well met sort of culture. So when did you identify that this was kind of actually becoming a bit of a problem and it was too much of a crutch and it wasn't serving you anymore? I mean, it takes quite a lot of inner strength to be able to step away from that and to actually be defiant in that I've got to stop this because it's not serving me anymore. I don't think I ever had a, a sort of, you know, Damascene moment. I think what happened was that because one was surrounded by people who drank and by, as I say, a sort of culture of drink it didn't occur to one that one was any different from anybody else i think it was it was fairly obvious to most people that i would go further and, and perhaps be more ludicrous than than most people and get into more scrapes but only because i think i was sort of naturally more inquisitive <laughs> um i mean where people said oh you mustn't go there i tended to think well i think i must <laughs> but it came to pass, as it were, that I got married. And for many years, you know, we had a very jolly sort of mad social time, both of us. But then, you know, life caught up. I mean, I, I never got hangovers. I never, I really didn't feel bad. And I, I never sort of passed out or was ill or anything. So I think I had the misfortune to have a sort of constitution that could take it, as it were. So it wasn't so much a physical thing. It, was, it became a behavioral thing. And also a mental thing. And I think when the children arrived, it became obvious that, that, you know, one couldn't really continue to 
be unreliable and stay out and be quite as self-indulgent as one had been, because it does lead to immense self-indulgence and a sort of very unacceptable solipsism that, that does make drunks very unattractive, but only to those who are not. And more and more I found the people that I was drinking with were limited because the more sensible people, the more grown-up people had sort of begun to understand that they should perhaps behave differently. So the kind of the, the sort of milieu in which one moved became a little bit more desperate. And I think it became obvious to me, much later than it had to Louise and to a few other friends, that things had to change. So I, I tried limiting, I tried, you know, drinking less, I tried to discipline myself into not going to lunches, not doing whatever, but uh, it was always far too tempting. And, you know, I had a lot of sort of friends in the music industry and in, you know, the arts and whatever, who, who had, you know, a very undisciplined life, who could go to lunch and had nothing to do in the afternoon and, you know, whatever. and it didn't matter if they turned up to the studio in the most terrible state, because that's what they did. So it was very difficult to withdraw. Also, the culture was very different then. It was seen as a sort of, especially by one's friend, one's drinking friends, I hasten to add. It was seen as a sort of um, capitulation. And the whole idea of uh, alcoholism was thought of as a sort of terrible weakness. And that the drying out, as it were, as it was called, as a sort of blemish on your social behaviour. So it was, it was an odd thing, and, but having given it, given it sort of two or three goes, I, I realised in the great sort of tapestry of life, as it were, the drinking uh, seesaw was going down more than it was going up. And I think the realisation was that too many days were being destroyed by drinking, too many nice things were being ruined by it, and very little was being made better by it. So, you know, in, in the sort of bank of booze, um, I suddenly got an overdraft rather than a deposit, if that makes sense, uh, and a very obvious one. And so I, I, I just thought, or realised rather than thought, you know, somehow this has got to stop. And then it just became a question of how best to do it. The things that came to mind that I suppose were most pressing, and it seems odd that they should be these, but I think it's the same for many people, were what do I do now? How do I behave now? Where do I go at lunchtime? What do I do in an aeroplane when they come around with the drinks trolley? What happens when the girls grow up and their friends come and say, and they go, oh my God, it's a dry household or whatever. I sort of assumed that I was going into a sort of, you know, a desert in which no booze could exist for anyone around me. I hadn't really thought it through. And I think the things that, that made the biggest difference to me were... A friend who I hadn't seen for some time, who had got sober, pointed out the processes and the tricks to appear that you weren't not drinking, to make no issue of it, you know, to have a soda water with a piece of lemon in it, to, yeah. you know, all those things that didn't put you in the line of fire, that didn't have you, oh, for heaven's sake, they were ridiculous. So those tricks of the trade, as it were, were incredibly useful. And the next really big thing was two or three people who I admired enormously talking to me about the fact they no longer drank. And I had no idea they no longer drank. And I could see how good their lives were. I could see there was, there was life after 
getting sober, as it were, I could see that they were having a ball. And in a couple of cases, cases, I could also see that people who had been really bad drunks, I mean, they'd been wonderful until the turn, as it were, then suddenly they'd been absolute brutes, I mean, really appalling, suddenly weren't. They were suddenly kind, funny, sympathetic people. And I had complete support from, uh, obviously, my wife and my, my daughters were too, too young then to really know. But I did feel sort of bound to avoid some people who I knew would be troublesome. So my, there's no doubt, you know, I, I didn't see some friends. In some cases, when I reestablished the friendship, it was meaningless because it was only a, a drunken friendship. And were you getting any support in the background? I mean, did you go into uh, rehab or did you get a counsellor? Or... I didn't go to rehab, but my doctor, as it so happened, was a man called Robert Lefevre. And I'd said to him, uh, I started to get hangovers for the first time and they were really awful and, and, and unrecognisable because, you know, I just thought I was ill, thinking I might have some sort of awful bug. And he said, well, you know, you do smell like a brewery. Were you very drunk last night? And I said, good Lord, yes. And he said, you know, what time did you stop drinking? I said, five o'clock or something. He said, when did you get up? And I said, half an hour ago. This was sort of an eight o'clock meeting. He said, well, that may well be it. And we, we had a chat about it. And he said, and I said, you know, do you think I should? And he said, you certainly give up. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, and there's no doubt it's impinging your life. So he was very helpful in that way to show me the sort of form because otherwise I wouldn't have known really who to talk to. I didn't know. Obviously, I'd heard of AA and all those things, but I'd never been. But he suggested I, I go to some meetings. And to begin with, I, having a sort of Calvinistic streak, I thought I would go to the really nastiest, toughest ones uh, just to sort of self-flagellate a bit. So I went to the ones that sort of, you know, Stepney and, you know, found myself amongst sort of people with brick red faces and you know, tattoos and one tooth who'd sort of, you know, lived on the streets and whatever. And I found myself thinking I was a complete charlatan because their lives had been dreadful. And to be honest, I walked away from the first ones of those thinking, right, no wonder you drink, mate. You know, if you life like that, I would carry on, which obviously wasn't very good advice. So, um, and I talked to a friend who I then was told, you know, was in the rooms. And he said, no, you, you, you've got to go where you feel an empathy. You're going to go where you feel at one with the people. So I sort of went to various ones, but I began to hear some really good stuff, mainly that it does get better, which you don't believe to begin with, and, you know, people there who are having an incredibly happy life. And I really did see the magic of it. I saw the magic of, you know, what sobriety does. I just want to take a quick moment to say a big thank you to my wonderful sponsor, Bowden. Bowdoin is a British brand that has championed uplifting, eclectic British style since it was founded 31 years ago. Perhaps it's time to add to your collection this autumn with some new knitwear, maybe with a modern twist such as a puff sleeve. I've just indulged in a new ultra soft cashmere, which I can honestly tell you I'll be living in this winter. But what I love most about the brand is that they've always championed women from a variety of different backgrounds and seek to inspire them to enjoy a life well lived, which is exactly what I'm aiming to do with my podcast. Head to Bowden.com to check out their new autumn collection or to their Instagram at Bowden underscore clothing. Did you 
have any relapses on your way to sobriety? I mean, before I got into a sort of more formal way of life and sobriety, certainly from the time I had first realised and accepted I needed to get sober, I did. And they were nearly always, not so much disastrous, but you know, the remorse was so dreadful. And the sort of self-hatred of being such an idiot was you know, so unbearable that I think I sort of really talked myself into saying, this is simply, this is mad, putting your hand in the fire again. So after that, it was really just this sort of discipline of not drinking or doing anything, but mainly of trying to begin with, find a lifestyle that was joyous without too many risks. And I found pretty quickly I had absolute confidence in myself to not relapse, to not have a drink for the hell of it. And then that, that sort of wondrous thing happened when you f suddenly find you can't even sort of bear the smell of it. You can't even, you know, the whole thing becomes as natural a state of affairs as drinking was before. And you started by saying that you were sort of introverted extrovert. And did you find that your confidence actually gained more momentum as you got more sober because actually you were gaining confidence through natural means based on your kind of your own talent your own skills your own innate character as opposed to just conforming to what everyone else was doing and being the sort of maverick at the party absolutely i i still find myself playing the giddy goat and sort of playing it for laughs and things but my level of self-confidence i didn't mean sort of overweening dick swinging confidence increased but my own level of self-confidence of being able to cope with things of being able to get there that I would do a decent job that I wouldn't put my foot in it too bad I wouldn't let people down I wouldn't let myself down that knowledge came with enormous self-confidence because you suddenly thought I'm in control you know I'm the boss here the booze isn't the boss I'm the boss you know if I don't want to go to something I won't go if I want to support a friend and I say I'll be there I will be there I became as it were, trustworthy, and I became reliable. And although that's wonderful for other people, you know, who'd had to put up with some fairly cavalier behaviour, it's also fantastic for oneself. I can get on the train, I, will, you know, I won't miss the plane, I won't, you know, I'll, I'll do these things. And it became much easier to order one's life and to just enjoy things. It's so interesting how, as addicts, and, you know, I haven't struggled with alcohol or drugs, but you know, I've struggled with other things. You have no self-belief. And actually, a lot of what is sort of masked by the addiction is this crippling fear of who am I in the world? And, and you're sort of almost suppressing your personality. And, and as you come out of it, and you, you suddenly realize that actually, I can be responsible for myself, and I can look after myself. I think that's what you're alluding to as well. I kind of really sense this feeling that suddenly you have these tiny little epiphanies where it's like you say, I can get the tra on the train, I can actually pet the kids from school on time or whatever it is for people. Oh, absolutely. I think these little victories need to be celebrated. But I, but I also think that, that one of the problems of any sort of addiction, anything that, that masks the real you, is that you can go the way of thinking drunk me is the best me or addicted me is the best me. What I do when I'm drunk, write a song, write a book, whatever it is, I'm doing it best because my creative juices are being 
massaged by this addiction. And that's a solace to a lot of people who have addictions. Yes, it may be awkward, it may make my life very difficult, but I am a tortured artist or I am a tortured accountant or whatever you might be, and this is the only way I can do it. And it does take a bit of time to get through that, you know, in sobriety to things like, actually, this is the real me. The unfettered, unaddicted me is the real me. And then, then it's your job to make yourself the best you you can be. So Theo, I know that you were a creature of extremes when you were drinking, and I think every addict has that element in them. It's that reckless streak and that ability to push ourselves right to the edge and to take these risks that a lot of people would look on as being highly sort of irresponsible and ridiculous. But what gives you that sort of immense pleasure now and what brings you the most amount of joy to your life in terms of just things you look forward to, things that you on a daily basis think, God, you know, I'm really lucky to have that. Oh, I mean, without doubt, my family is, is the absolute most important thing in my life by miles. After that, I, I love what I do. So long as I'm doing what I love rather than the sort of business side of it and the sort of, you know, the, the administrative side of it, I'm incredibly happy. But I also love thousands of things. I'm, you know, I'm mad about many sports. I'm mad about cinema, music, playing music. I find new interests all the time. I read a lot and that sort of sets me off on various paths. And I can't imagine how anybody can say they're bored. I can't imagine how anybody doesn't fill a day, even if it's walking around London looking at the buildings or whatever. So I think I have a, a really sort of curious mind. I, I still find risk captivating, and I think I take them naturally. But I, I think I have a, a, a sort of break now where I didn't before. I mean, I think I have a natural sort of, uh, you're going to hit this wall rather than will the wall go or will I attitude. <laughs> so I do tend to, to stop. I tend to learn lessons much more quickly and see other people's points of view. It's wonderful to have those vicarious joys as well in, in other people's success and, 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 and also in what they do, just loving what they do, their books or their music or what have you. I just find there's not enough hours in the day, as it were. Life sounds very rich and very fulfilling, yeah. I'm not sure how fulfilling it is. I think, you know, I do a lot of stuff. What comes out at the other end? Not sure. Gosh, well, Theo, you've been so generous with your time. So thank you so much for coming. It's been a joy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. Mm-hmm.